So I was looking today for a good song to play in honor of uh, Independence Day. Um, I couldn't find one. <laughs> well, I couldn't find one that was not too corny or, you know. So, but I found a really good Nina Simone song, which speaks about, she's singing so passionately about freedom. So um, here it is, it's called Ain't Got No Life. No money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no bed, ain't got no mind, ain't got no mother, ain't got no culture, ain't got no friends, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no love, ain't got no name. I got life, I got freedom, and nobody can take it away. Hope you all like that. Sometimes poetry and song gets there much better than, than words do. There's a couple of keys here we found in the parking lot. If anybody has got their body and their legs and their liver, but missing a couple of pairs of keys, <laughs> this might be important at some point. I got my keys. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's a joke about July 4th. Hope it's not too bad. The 4th of July weekend was approaching, and Miss Pelham, the nursery school teacher, took the opportunity to tell her class about patriotism. We live in a great country, she announced. One of the things that we should be happy is that in this country we are all free. 
Trevor, who was a little boy in a class, came walking up to her from the back of the room. He stood with his hands on his hips and said loudly, I'm not free, I'm four. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so anyhow, that's the talk for this evening, and um, have a good night. <laughs> So, um, you know, being English, it's always an interesting holiday to celebrate, um, <laughs> Independence Day. It's a, it's a great day of national mourning for us, the loss of our, loss of our largest colony. Um, but we're, we're, we're surviving, we're hanging in there, you know. So, um, anyhow, I am a citizen of the state, United States these days, so. Um, and I was reflecting about you know, what this holiday means, freedom, independence, liberty, justice for all, and all that. And, um, you know, I know on the left, those of us on the left can tend to lean towards the cynical, especially when it comes to patriotism. And so I was at a dance class yesterday morning, and the teacher, Davida, was um, sort of inviting us to, to um, Remind, think, reflect on what it is we love about this country. And I went, also went to a, a gathering in the evening where that was the same invitation to reflect on what we, what we value about living here. You know. And so I appreciated that turning of um, my mind to the positive rather than to seeing what's wrong, because it's easy to see the glass is half empty, isn't it? We all know the various injustices and inequalities and the oppression and the racism and all kinds of things, the political mess that we live in, and yet we all have amazing amount of freedom, relatively, of religion. You know, there are many places in the world we couldn't be practicing like this right now, or speech, or movement, association, press, relatively. Um, and I, I was reflecting on w my coming to the States from England, and one of the things I've really appreciated, well, many things I've appreciated, is the, um, because of being a new, a new country, relatively new country, a new culture, there's a lot of uh, openness here, especially in California, a lot of uh, receptivity, a lot of freshness, a lot of vitality. And, um, you know, things in Europe can be, the, you know, there's a lot of beauty about Europe and its culture and its history, but it also can be very... Um, stifling of, of, of anything new and uh, uh, there's a sense of cynicism often that pervades and it's harder to move, harder to get things done, harder to bring in new ideas. And so um, uh, it also is to be free of the class system or relatively you know, freer of the class system. Is, I've, I've experienced tremendous uh, happiness about that. Um, and it also I think it's what allowed the Dharma to take root more quickly here, and the Dharma has really taken root in America. You know, in a, you know, in historically, it usually takes a couple hundred years for the Dharma to take root in a culture. And the Dharma has been here, you could say, you know, maybe thirty years, thirty-five years, you know, with the beatniks and um, in the Asia, and the teachers coming back from Asia in the early seventies, Zen teachers and. So, um, maybe 40 years now, my math's not very good. Um, 
so you know, and and the spread of Dharma and Buddhist teachings and yoga and you know, it's it's tremendous actually, and I think it speaks to the fact that the culture is is, you know, um, there's an aspect of the culture that's very receptive, very open. There's also also other aspects of the culture that's not, as we all know, but I'm trying to focus on the positive, please. So. So, um, you know, maybe you had some of those reflections yourselves, I don't know, but I found that very useful to reflect on what was valuable. And then I also, I read the Constitution for the first time, the, de- the Declaration of Independence for the first time. Um, passed me by at my citizenship test, but... And, um, and I was just reflecting on what liberty means. What does liberty mean? What is happiness, the pursuit of liberty, happiness, and all that? So these are also important Dharma questions. What does liberty mean? What is freedom? What is independence? What is happiness and the pursuit of happiness? So I think what's written in the Declaration is a little different than how the Buddha would talk about the pursuit of happiness. Sadly, the pursuit of happiness, mostly in this culture, has become the pursuit of materialism and consumerism. And the values of what really supports happiness often get left behind and the busyness of doing and working and producing and making money. So, so I thought I'd reflect on some themes about independence and interdependence. So generally Buddhists say happy interdependence day. <laughs> so happy interdependence weekend and life. So, you know, of course, independence, you know, and this day means independence from the British, from the oppression, from the colonialism, from the, from the injustices of that rule of the British Empire, which was uh, pretty brutal as an empire, as empires do. And of course, as the chain of dependence uh, continues, so those patterns of colonialism have not gone away. We've gotten rid of one oppressor, and we've become the oppressor to certain cultures and certain nations including the Native American culture. So it's a good example of how you know, the, the, this, this notion of the independence is always relative to interdependence, how we can't have independence in isolation, that those ripples of, of dependence and the cause and effect of those actions are being felt. So um, here's what Rumi has to say about freedom is a little different than perhaps Jefferson's idea. Inside this new love die, your way begins on the other side. Become the sky, take an axe to the prison wall, escape, walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now, do it now. Take an axe to the prison wall, escape, walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died, that the old, the egoic, scared, helpless, fearful self is no longer casting its grip over you. 
So um, the Buddha talked about independence um, in interesting ways in the teaching. And so I want to speak to a couple of those. Um, this is a, a quote from, from the text, <coughs> which I think I've read in here before. I think it speaks to our path as lay students versus being monks and nuns. He says, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women, lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, and become independent of others in my teaching. Become independent of others in my teaching. This is a phrase that he uses for someone who's attained uh, the first level of realization. It's called stream entry. When you become independent of others means you stand in your own ground, you stand in your own knowing, you stand in your own confidence about what you know to be true. About, about your understanding of the truth and that you no longer need to uh, refer to others, you know, to have some, uh, there's, no, there's no longer that need to look outside of yourself to anybody for what you know to be true. So it's an interesting reflection in terms of our practice to see where it is that we stand in the truth of our own understanding, in our own realization. That's not to say we throw out teachings and teachers and the texts and all of that. We can still learn tremendously. And there's also a place for coming to know what's true in our own experience. And these teachings are pointing to that realization. The point is to know for yourself what these teachings are pointing to. Right? We can hear them, we can study them, and that's wonderful. And the point is to know what is true. So you may want to reflect to yourself, what do you know to be true in your experience? Where are you independent of others' views and opinions? So you may, you maybe you may hear another point of view and it doesn't rock you, it doesn't destabilize you because you're pretty grounded in what you know. To go beyond doubt. And to also be be sort of wary or to be vigilant around um, uh, claiming that too soon. Well, I know the way. I know what I'm up to. I know what's true. Let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> and maybe we know intellectually, we've all read tons of books, right? We've all you know, heard lots of talks and PhDs in Buddhism and but do we know from our direct experience what those teachings and talks and words are pointing to? So I love this Nasruddin story. Nasruddin is a sort of crazy wisdom Sufi master. And um <coughs> he's out one day and he's uh, spraying pepper all around his garden in, his, in, his, in the front of his house. And his students come by and they say, Nazruddin, what are you doing? You're spraying pepper all around your garden. He said, oh, it helps to keep the tigers away. And they said, but, but Nazruddin, there's no tigers for thousands of miles around here. Like, wh wh what's up? He says, yeah, see, it works. <laughs> so sometimes there's knowing and there's crazy knowing and not linear knowing and 
So what, do we, what can we know from our experience that's true? You know, some of the key things that the Buddha spoke to, to understanding the transience of life, to understanding the transience of every single thing that we meet, touch, taste, love, breathe, hold, everything. Everything is moving, changing, shifting, passing, birthing, dying, even as we talk. So we all know that intellectually. We all know seasons come and go and moods and feelings and thoughts and politicians, thank goodness, come and go. But we live mostly as if that's not true. We mostly live as if things are going to last, things are going to endure, things are going to be stable. My relationship, my money, my health, my you name it. We get shocked. You know, we get surprised. I'm always, I'm always amused when I, the favorite piece of clothing that I, you know, sometimes I get a piece of clothing and I just wear it all the time. And it suddenly starts fraying. I'm like, what? Like, no, it's not possible. <laughs> My favorite shirt, no. Oh, yeah, impermanence. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, musto. <laughs> so we never know. A good friend of mine just told me a story the other day. His best friend from high school had a seizure when hospital and four days later came out, woke up, and was told he had third degree, third stage brain cancer, which is very, very rare to come out of. And up to that moment, he was living his life. He had two years before he was going to retire, and he was looking forward to his kids going to college so he could travel with his wife, and suddenly everything is turned on its head. And we all know people who've gone through this. Maybe this has happened to you. You never know. So this is a key, simple but profound truth that we have to really get in our bones that nothing, nothing stays around. Nothing, as the Buddha said, is to be clung to, is to be held onto because it passes. That's not to say that we don't love what's here, we appreciate it more when it's here because we know it's going to pass. And of course we're human, so we forget, you know, it's, we, have, we have transience amnesia, <laughs> we have aging amnesia, we have mortality amnesia, we have all kinds of amnesia, it helps us function, otherwise we'd probably be in a complete nervous wreck panic state all the time. <laughs> oh my god, these glasses are going to go, and I'm my jumper, and oh no. Allows us to function, but we 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 kind of go to sleep. We go to sleep. Mindfulness means remembering, self-remembering. We wake up to the truth, to reality, and that's why we practice to wake up. We remember, we remember, we forget. We remember, we forget. We forgive ourselves. We forgive ourselves. We remember. We're compassionate. We forget. So I just got a new car recently, and I'm very aware of the new scratches that get put on the car, you know, <laughs> like as if the car's not going to get scratched. <laughs> you know, as, as Achan Cha used to say, he would hold up a cup and say, I love, you know, I can appreciate this cup because I know it's already broken. This cup is already broken. So I take care and I appreciate it, take care of it, makes nice tea, and it's already broken, as it will be, inevitably. So, um, 
Mary Oliver speaks to this beautifully in a poem called In Blackwater Woods, which I think I read here. Not so long ago, but it's always worthy of rereading. She says, look, the roses, no, the trees, and my eyes, <laughs> which are fading rapidly. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away forever. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I've ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. You must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So when we deepen in this knowing, this understanding, it becomes more fluid to let go. It's never necessarily easy to let go, but it becomes more fluid, becomes more graceful or easeful. Because there's less fighting with the truth of that reality. Because we know everything has to go. So the second thing that we can know, and there are many things we can know, but I'm pointing just to, to a few key things, is uh, the truth of causality, which is a little sort of an abstract word, but the truth of, our di of how everything arises because of a certain cause and condition. So nothing is here by accident. There's no mistakes in nature. Everything has arisen due to billions of years of evolution. And to see that this, so a lot of, a lot of the, the orientation with, with, the, with the practice of mindfulness is to understand that this, because of this, that arises. Because that cease, this ceases, that ceases. That we live in this causal universe that actions have consequences. And because of that, we can transform and change. If that wasn't so, everything would be static. So I was reading a, an article today um, about the World Cup, uh, which I've been following religiously. <laughs> and um, sadly, because England didn't do so well, as you know. <laughs> America did a little better, I have to say. So um, it was about uh, a story of uh, the inmates in Robben Island, uh, South Africa, where they would uh, hold um, prisoners, mostly the uh, prisoners from the apartheid, from the ANC, from the anti-apartheid movement, where Nelson Mandela was incarcerated for 27 years. And in this article was pointing to the, the, the one of the things that kept their sanity 
was their religious fervor around soccer. And they would play so soccer and they'd have teams and they would have stats and they even got a, the handbook of uh, rules from the from FIFA, the, the world, you know, the World Soccer Organization, and they it was a it was a complete um, uh, it just consumed their attention, but it was also a way of helping them to break down uh, divisions that existed <coughs> amongst the different anti-apartheid groups, and um, so it became very key uh, as as part of their as uh, their their political process. Actually, uh, they even built a wall so Nelson Mandela couldn't see the game because that was too much enjoyment. Wasn't allowed to play. Never allowed to play. But anyhow, they talked about that this, that the, the the passion that was created around soccer and seeing how it could transform their lives. Um, they felt like was the seeds of South Africa hosting the World Cup in 2010. This was way back in you know they were incarcerated in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Um, so beautiful story of causality. You know we never know what influence a particular action will take. Mm. May we go on a silent meditation retreat, which can be very profound. Maybe we do a week or 10 days somewhere. And we come back and, s and people say, well, how was it? It's like, oh, it was good, but you know, nothing much happened. It was quiet, you know, just, just <laughs> followed my breath and, you know, no big deal, you know, a bit of knee pain, you know. <laughs> and then 10 years later, something ripens from that retreat that completely transforms our outlook on life. Some insight, some, some teaching takes root and flowers, and we have no idea that that would have that impact. And so everything that we do, every action, every thought, feeling has a, has a ripple. You know, ripples in our own psyche and consciousness, it ripples out with who we interconnect with, who we interrelate, who we love, who we're in relationship with. So as I was pointing to in the meditation, to understand how things come into being and how things pass away. You know, sometimes we feel like the victim of our mental states and moods and feelings and thoughts as if they just do us or happen to us. But we can start paying attention and seeing what happens when we spend our day thinking about what a bad person we are. You know, all the things that we didn't do well enough that day. What is it, what's the consequence of that kind of negative thinking? Or if we look around the room or we move through life and we're only focused on what's wrong with people, you know, what their flaws are, you know, how they could be better. You know, it has its impact on ourselves and, and, and our relationships. So we all have our tendencies and our habits. And the Buddha is saying, you can transform this. You can look at this. You can pay attention. Does this lead to happier, wholesome, joyful states of mind? Right? You can look back at your day, like some of the things you did today, do they really contribute to your well-being? Maybe so, maybe not. So, and to see that we have, you know, we don't, there's a lot of things we don't have a lot of power over in this world, what life wants to throw at us. But we do have power over how we, how we track it, how we stay present to it, and also some power over what we choose how we respond to all these circumstances. Whether we respond with hatred or judgment or love or kindness, receptivity or resistance. 
So um, the second way the Buddha talked about independence, uh, he, he said he in, is in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the, the main teaching where this practice of mindfulness, Vipassana, comes from. And there's a refrain in this teaching that he, that he repeats several times. So I guess he repeated it several times because we need it, you know, takes a while to kind of go in. So, and the line is, it, it goes, he abides, she abides, independently, not clinging to anything in the world. So the line preceding that is something like, one practices mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and the continuity of attention. Right, we practice mindfulness, this quality of attentiveness, to, to, have, to attain a, a, a state of mind that we have simple knowledge of what's happening. We know what's happening as it's happening in our experience. We're conscious, we're awake, we're alive. And the point of that is to, uh, to abide independently, not cling to anything in the world. What would it be to abide independently in this world? Or what would, be a, what would, be, what would we be abiding independently from? What would you like to abide independently from? Maybe Washington? <laughs> Maybe your neighbor's barking dog? <laughs> Maybe your health issues? Maybe your inner critic? What would it be like to abide independently of your inner critic? Wouldn't that be liberating? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh. So to think about what you don't abide independently from. Right? Maybe you don't abide independently from fear or from anxiety or from hopelessness or from loneliness or self-worth, lack of self-worth. And what would it mean to, to move through this world without clinging, without grasping, without holding on in the way that we get so attached to how things should be, how we want things, how we want people to be, how we want our work to be, our relationship, or our unscratched car, or our, you know, the football team that we're supporting in the next round, or soccer team, that is. So how much time, how much energy do we spend on looking, wanting, clinging, holding on to that which is inevitably going to pass through like the wind through our fingers? So last night I, was, I, I got inv invited out to um, go watch the fireworks on someone's sailboat, um, which I thought was a great invitation. And so I took it. And um, thinking it was a beautiful sunny day, and very <laughs> calm, and nice and warm, and lots of fireworks, and, you know, t-shirts, and, <laughs> and then just before I left the house, you know, I could see, oh, the fog is rolling in, and I know what it means when the fog rolls in. I live on a ridge, and it almost blows the house over every day. And I, there, was, there was definitely some clinging. I was not abiding independently of wanting the fog to go away. <laughs> there was definitely some clinging to calm, sunny skies. <laughs> so everybody could actually see the fireworks that they'd spent so much money you know, preparing. 
so um, yeah, so it happens in the smallest of things. I mean, you know, it wasn't a big deal. You know, a little clinging to to warm weather <laughs> causes a complete setup in the Bay Area. Um, to the bigger things in life, you know, how we want our career to go, or our financial situation, or our retirement, or our relationship, you know, our health. So what helps us to have this looser, lighter touch relationship with things? You know, when we see, when we get to understand, when we bring attention to that, the way that we hold on, that we cling, we attach, we get attached to things, we get attached to people in an unhealthy way that kind of stifles the flow, right? We feel it like a rope burn. So in the metaphors, when we hold on, you hold on to a rope as you're falling, what happens? You get a rope burn. So for me, mindfulness and these teachings, mindfulness is the doorway to this capacity to abide independently. I independently means to not be so caught up in reactivity to what's happening. Anybody here get reactive to stuff? <laughs> and you watch the news and you know after three minutes you want to you know throw the TV out the window and um, you can't believe that the politician really said that. You know. Or you get home and your house is a mess. You know, your partner hasn't cleaned up for three days. And so we all have a lot of reactivity and reactivity is painful. You know, we often we get reactive and we, we get into sort of judging and blaming and it's all about this what this person did or didn't do. And we think the problem's out there in the world and, and our work and our bosses and our the Wall Street or whatever it is that we're mad about. Right? But is that the source of the suffering? The source of the suffering is in our reactivity, is in that burning, that clenching. So it was a beautiful story. I was teaching a retreat last week up the hill, a yoga meditation retreat. And this man came into one of the meetings that we have. And uh, he, he, he was talking about he came in really late. He'd slept in through the talk. So he came in like halfway through the talk as I was giving. And um, I scolded him, of course, halfway through the talk. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, and he's, you know, he was mortified that he was so late and he was really embarrassed and self-conscious and he thought everybody was looking at him and everybody was judging him as he got to his seat. And of course we were, but that's another issue. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> well, who knows, but I wasn't. Anyhow, um, instead, of, instead of kind of collapsing into that sort of self-hating, how could I sleep? I can't believe I did that. It's such a, you know, the stories we could make about ourselves for doing something like that, which is, of course is completely inconsequential to anything except being late. And, um, and he just sat with it. He just, sa he just stayed with the feelings of that contraction, feeling guilty, feeling you know, embarrassed, self-conscious. And he said, and, and as he just stayed with it without, the, the mindfulness allowed him not to get caught up in that, in that sort of self-berating. And, and he knows it softened into this sort of patient, kind softness. That, 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 that that usual habitual contraction just softened with presence, with openness, with awareness. That we don't have to actually necessarily do that much except notice, be present, be aware, hold. And these things, you know, they, they come and they go. 
permanence. It's time flying by. Okay, moving right along. So, um, so there's independence. So I want to move on to talking about interdependence. So. We are all feeling the impact of that interdependent movement of the window and how it's affecting the door. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, so this, you know, it's interesting that, that we in, in this culture, this idea of individualism and independence is really is is, is a very high virtue, right? And yet, you know, from a scientific point of view, from a Dharma point of view, and from an indigenous point of view, there's no such thing as independence. Nothing exists independently anywhere, from anything, ever, at all time. If it did, the whole thing would collapse. The whole system would collapse. We live in this interconnected, in the Huayin school, it's the Chinese Chan school of Buddhism. They talked about reality being interconnected, four, four different aspects to reality, interconnected, interpenetrating, interrelated, and into something else, uh, <laughs> interdependent. <laughs> that everything is inextricably woven, and they, they have this beautiful metaphor of this net, in, they call it Indra's net, and uh, like a big fishing net, except it goes, expands the entire universe, and that every, that every node of the net was a, is a jewel, and, ev and every jewel of the net reflects every part of the whole net, and every other node of the net is jewel is reflecting every other jewel, and that's how life is. But of course, that's not necessarily our experience. So Thich Nhat Hanh, great Vietnamese teacher, talks about, he says, he's teaching, he says, he holds up a piece of paper and he says, what do you see? See a piece of paper? This is your kindergarten text. Do you see a piece of paper? He says, when I look at this piece of paper, I see trees and rainfall, and forest, clouds, sunlight, stars, the solar system, farmers, ants. The whole of the earth is in this piece of paper. Without all of those elements, those trees wouldn't have come to be, this paper wouldn't come to be, and we wouldn't be here to see. So Drew Dillinger, who's a great poet, puts it in a more cosmic and, um, well, his words speak for themselves. Let's meet at the confluence where you flow into me and one breath swirls between our lungs. For one instance, to dwell in the presence of the galaxies. For one instance, to live in the truth of the heart. The poet says this entire traveling cosmos is the secret one slowly growing a body. Two eagles are mating, clasping each other's claws and turning cartwheels in the sky. Grasses are blooming, grandfathers dying, consciousness blinking on and off. All of this is happening at once all of this vibrating into existence out of nothingness. Every particle floating into existence, transcribing the, in the ineffable, 
arising and passing away, arising and passing away 23 trillion times per second. When the Buddha, when the Buddha saw that, he smiled. 16 million tons of rain are falling every second on the planet. 16 million tons of rain are falling every second on the planet. An ocean perpetually falling and every drop is your body. Every motion, every feather, every thought is your body. Time is your body and the infinite curled inside like invisible rainbows folded into light. Every word of every tongue is love telling a story to our own ears. Let our lives be incense burning like a hymn to the sacred body of the universe. Let our lives be incense burning like a hymn to the sacred body of the universe. My religion is rain, my religion is stone, my religion reveals itself to me in sweaty epiphanies. Every leaf, every river, every animal, your body, every creature trapped in the gears of corporate nightmares, every species made extinct was once your body. Ten million people are dreaming that they're now junipers and violets are blossoming, stars exploding and being born. God is having a deja vu. I am one elaborate crush. We cry petals as the void is singing. You are the dark that holds the stars in intimate distance, that spun and whirling and whirling the world into existence. Let's meet at the confluence where you flow into me and one breath swirls between our lungs. Drew Dillinger. Just about says it all. So, but the, the the mystery is we live in these in we in in the way that we, the way that our mind has organized, the way the brain develops, we necessarily um, have more attention to this micro part of the universe, right? Otherwise, you know, if I was my attention was in that part of the universe, I'd probably crash my car, <laughs> you know, I'll stick my fork in my ear or something. So we have attention to this part of the universe, but and, but and that attentiveness leads to a constriction, a contraction of association, identification, and we believe this part of the universe to be separate from the other moving parts of the Earth's surface. So I like to think of us as moving parts of the Earth's surface. Do you think of yourself as the moving part of the Earth's surface? Because you are. <laughs> we are part of the Earth's moving surface. We think we're on the Earth, right? As if the Earth is different from us. And we are, you know, we're cognizant of it. You know, and some people say that we are, you know, the, the, you know, the, evolutionaries, the evolution's way of allowing the Earth and the universe to behold itself through our own senses. For the first time, the, the you know we, the, the Earth, the, the universe can see itself. You know, not the first time, but this particular manifestation through our eyes, through our telescopes, through our computers, and the universe is going, "Wow, what a cool universe! Supernovas exploding, and stars creating, and universe, galaxies." You know, I don't know if the universe is saying that, but it could be. I w if I was the universe, I'd be saying that. So, so part of practice is to help us, you know, as, as Rumi points to, to step out of the prison, the self, 
self-imposed prison of the, you know, we're, we're busily rearranging this, the, the furniture in our prison cell as a metaphor, you know, not realizing the vast tapestry of, you know, we, we, we weave a tapestry in our lives and in our relationships. And, you know, fortunately, you know, the, the world, or unfortunately, the, you know, we're seeing now, finally, we're starting to wake up to that we are, that we, you know, that we are, we intimately into R, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that everything that we do has an effect on everything else. And the way that we live as a human species is proving to be devastating for every other life form on the planet, including ours. And so we're starting to wake up to the fact that as we, li- as we, as we see that we're not so separate, we see we're not so independent, and not so independent, our actions have consequences, and it wakes us up. This is part of how we wake up. We see the effects of our actions. How else do we learn? We learn when the ship is sinking. So we're living in a, you know, a sinking ship, you could say. As Martin Luther King put it, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So, as I mentioned, I I lead uh, wilderness nature retreats, and one of the reasons I like to be outdoors so much is because this aspect of reality is so self-evident. You know, when we live in the, you know, in our cubicles and our boxes of cars and houses, and you know, we, we, we don't have such a visceral sense of how impacted and, and interrelated we are with everything. But if we go outside and we live outside a little, we see that we are just part of the Earth. You know, and how affected we are by the lunar cycle and the solar cycle and the humidity and the temperature and the sun and so, as I like to say to people on my retreats, when we, when we go up to the mountains and we drink out of the mountain stream, and since we're about 70% water, this is um, uh, probably good Sierra Nevada vintage, 2010. <laughs> maybe like a March rainfall, you know, by the time it takes time to come down the mountain. You know, it's maybe snow, you know, it's snow, it's probably snow. <laughs> Become snow melt. Drifted down, you know, maybe the, you know, American River, down into the Russian River, and into the, you know, wherever they collect the water for Marin, somewhere in the Russian River, I think. Mixed with a little rain from Mount Tam. So maybe it's all from Mount Tam. You know, good chance maybe it's all from Mount Tam. So, and since I live on Mount Tam, sort of, close anyway, I'm actually, you're looking at mostly Mount Tam sitting here. <laughs> dressed in, dressed in clothes. Mostly hand-me-downs from friends. So, um... And I'm actually looking out at this vast sea of rain and snow and clouds and ocean that you are too. Probably mostly Mount Tam Reservoir, or if you're from San Francisco, you're probably from the Sierras. 
on the east bay, probably from the Sierra. There's actually lakes here and there. So, you know, we think, well, that's kind of weird. You know, he's kind of weird. <laughs> but it's true. You know, and, it's, and, and, and conceptual, it's so hard to conceptualize that, right? It's like, well, I just drink water out of the tap, and I pee it out, and I'm me. And it has nothing to do with me except, you know, I hydrate, and then I pee it out. But it's, I stay the same, like unaffected. I'm, I'm just this, you know, this little tube that needs replenishing every now and then. There's legs on it and a mouth. <laughs> But it's true. You know, tears are the salinity of the oceans. Blood is the salinity of the oceans. It's the same. We're saline creatures. We act in skin. So... <coughs> So to pay attention to your environment and its impact on you and your impact on it. We wonder why we feel crappy at the end of the day when we've been looking at our computer screen for 10 hours and then spending the rest of the time on our cell phone. We are sensate creatures that are affected by our environment. So, but as I said, it, it's challenging to remember this piece you know, because we're so identified with our bodies and our identity and I'm a person and I'm whatever we are, man, woman, gay, straight, young, old. And we coalesce around these identities and we the mind separates the world into dualities of this and that, good and bad, clan, not clan, tribe, not tribe. I notice this when I'm biking. I'm biking. I, I do a lot of road biking out in West Marin. I'm just minding my own business, enjoying the nature and trying to avoid getting hit by the cars because um, that would be a direct example of interconnection where <laughs> I would be the loser of that scenario. And, um, and when they come too close, my, my, there's a little causal relation goes on and I get a little furious. <laughs> Because, you know, they could kill us. Um, and so it suddenly becomes me against them. <laughs> those truck drivers, those SUV drivers, those people who drive cars <laughs> that are a threat to all bicyclists everywhere. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, so that moment of feeling, you know, we're just all part of the Earth's surface. We're just, you know, drinking from the same source, breathing the same air to get off my road. <laughs> <laughs> so notice when you coalesce around, you know, and it's all, it's all due to this self-identity, this grasping at our self-identity, which is the core um, fixation and, and uh, core of uh, suffering, actually, because that, 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 I that fixation, identity, that rugged individualism leads to a certain isolation, separation, suffering. When that softens, when, when we're not so caught up in our self-identity, self-referencing, self-centeredness, 
we start to have a greater vantage point of reality. We start to see the living connection. We start to feel it. It's not, it's not just a nice concept. Or everything is one, it's all one, it's all interconnected. No, it's real. And we start to see it, see it through the heart, not just as a concept. This is Joan Borisenko. She writes, A mystic sees beyond the illusion of separateness into the intricate web of life in which all things are expressions of a single whole. You can call this web... You can call this web of life God, the Tao, the Great Spirit, the Infinite Mystery, Mother or Father, but it can only be known as love. We can only know this as love. When we feel it through, then we drop from our head center to our heart center. We feel this living, breathing matrix that we live in called the Earth, called Gaia, called the universe, is alive, vibrating, pulsating, interrelated, interconnected. We feel it as a beautiful expression of love. And it, ca- and it calls forth feelings of tenderness and compassion and vulnerability because we realize we're all in the same boat. We all sink with the boat, whether it's ecological devastation or pointless, futile warfare or economies based on nothing but air and speculation. We rise and fall with the tides. We're all in this together. Someone else's suffering becomes our suffering. Someone else's cancer issue is no longer just their cancer issue. It's a global issue about the way we're living and causing so much cancer. None of these things are separate in isolation. So the heart starts to feel, starts to feel compassionate, and it feels passionate about the suffering in the world and wishes to relieve it. That is the one of the consequences of living with this understanding is we feel, we, we know, we see how everything is interconnected. And so we wish, we root for life to live well. Because if it doesn't, if we don't live with integrity and compassion and honesty, we suffer, others suffer, the world suffers. So I want to close with a, um, a piece of writing from Thomas Merton, who's a beautiful... Christian monk and mystic. Um, I actually want to read two things. The first is from Robert Bly, called People Like Us. There are more like us all over the world. There are confused people who can't remember the name of the dog when they wake up, and people who love God but can't remember (laughs) where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house, and the second-story man gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives, and he's lonely, and they talk, and the thief goes back to, to college and evening graduate school. You can wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor, and you find your soul and greatness has a defender, and even in death you're safe. So lastly, this um, beautiful piece from Thomas Merton, who you know, clearly had a very deep level of this realization, and his heart woke up in beautiful ways, and this is one, one expression of this. So he was a monk in uh, Louisville. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be akin to one another, 
even though we were, we, we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine has become incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. There is no way of telling all of you that you are all walking around shining like the sun. Thank you. May you take your beacons of light and shine like the sun wherever you go. Thank you. See you next time. Take care. May you live in your true nature, true interconnected heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.